Well, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I encourage you to open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This morning we will be looking at verses 17 through 20 of Matthew 5. I'm going to read those verses out loud, and you can follow along in your copy of the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, starting to read in verse 17, down through verse 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And as Jesus refers there, To the kingdom of heaven, we've noted in our study thus far that the kingdom is a unifying theme throughout the Bible. God's redeeming his good work of creation since the fall of sin comes to its glorious end in the kingdom. Now, one thing was for sure in the hearts of Israel. Only righteous people can enter the kingdom. Only people who are right with God could enter. Which caused Israelites to ask the pertinent question, Am I righteous enough to enter? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus is giving us pictures of righteousness. He is showing how a person who is right with God should live. And what he shares in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 are very counterintuitive He says things that are radical, radical to the ears of his original listeners. As he opened the sermon, he basically says that the person who's truly righteous or right with God knows that they're not. And he's going to go on in the verses that we start looking at next week by making comments about the Old Testament law that are so radical that those who hear him, many of them will be upset. Because what he will say will cut to the heart of the religious leaders of Israel. They think they are doing good. They think that they are right with God. Because they have formulated a righteousness. What they've done over hundreds of years is they took God's Old Testament law and they laid 
next to it their tradition. And in these layers of tradition that they laid next to the law, they considered what they thought about the law to be on equal standing with what the law actually says. But what they did was this. They, in a sense, created their own righteousness. They put together a list, and they could check off that list and say, Hey, I'm doing good here, I'm doing good here, I'm doing good here, I'm doing good here, I'm right with God. And Jesus is going to come along, and in the verses we're going to see in the next few weeks, He's going to say, No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. And that's not going to go over very well. In fact, Jesus is going to be so radical that he is going to claim authority to tell them what the Old Testament law actually is saying. He's going to be so radical that he is going to disregard their oral tradition. He's going to start doing things that the religious leaders of the day would never do. He's going to hang out with sinners. The outcasts. And in a preemptive strike, before they can even accuse him, he's going to make this comment, and we're going to see it today, that he actually is the fulfillment of the law. What Jesus is going to claim is this, that the Old Testament points to him. And since it points to him, he has the authority to tell them what it really is saying about what it means to be right with God. Barbara and I enjoy going to historical sites and going to, uh, uh, for example, presidential libraries and, and Civil War battlefields. This, this last summer we went to the uh, Lincoln Presidential Museum and Library. This fall I was in Dallas and I did not realize that I could have seen the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum. It's right on the campus of SMU, Southern Methodist University. It opened May 1st of 2013, and it's had over 700,000 people visit. It has a lot of interactive displays to help people interpret what was going on during that period of time that President Bush's tenure uh, covered. If it's anything like others that we have gone to, there will be National Park Service employees there that can answer questions and, and give input and maybe take you on a tour. They'll be wearing their National Park Service uh, uniform. Some will even have on a National Park Service hat. Suppose you went to the Bush Library and you went on a tour. 
And the National Park Service representative was really sharing a lot about what was going on in the heart and mind of President Bush during September 11th, 2001, the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And talking about what went on behind closed doors. And then started saying some really radical things. And in fact, what the guide was saying didn't agree with necessarily what people understood was in print on the little placards next to some of the exhibits. And and people started wondering, who does this guy think that he is? That he can actually, he really thinks he knows what was going on in the mind of George W. Bush on that day? Only to have your guide take off his hat and have it be George W. Bush. Now that would be cool. The whole museum points toward George W. Bush. The whole museum is about George W. Bush. I think he has the right to interpret the museum. I think he has the right to say what was going on in his heart and mind. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. The people who are hearing Jesus are thinking, where does this guy come from? How does he think he can have the authority to actually tell us that we aren't right with God? How does he have the authority to tell us what the Old Testament law says? We're the teachers of the law. How does he think he can do that? And Jesus says... I'm the one that the Old Testament law is about. I'm the one that the Old Testament law points to. I have the authority to tell you what it's about. And it's about holiness. Absolute holiness. You see what the Pharisees and the religious leaders were doing? They thought they were good with God because they measured themselves by other people. We can always find somebody that we think, well, hey, at least I'm not like that guy or that man. But what Jesus is going to do is say, no, the law is not external. The law is measured in the heart. And next week we're going to start seeing Jesus really teaching radical thought for the day. And he's going to use a little phrase like, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit a murder. But I say to you, what? How can you do that? Because he's the one that the Old Testament law points to. He is the one that it's all about. He has the authority to teach What the law really said. That in order to have a righteousness that reflects the righteousness of God, we cannot measure ourselves next to another person. We have to measure ourselves next to God. So in this preemptive strike, Jesus, starting in verse 17 
is going to, in a sense, beat them to the punch. Because they have not started to object yet, but they soon will. And here's what he says, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And in verses 17 through 19, we're going to see that the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. In fact, a believer's position in the kingdom is going to be based on the level of his or her conformity to Jesus' teaching because Jesus is the one who actually can explain the Old Testament law as God intended the law. Jesus has the authority to say what is truly right with God. The religious leaders, the Pharisees are going to say, when they start hearing this about, well, the law says this, but I say this, they're going to say, you're trying to get rid of the Old Testament law. That's blasphemy. And Jesus is going to show here, I didn't come to abolish the law. I've come in its fulfillment. It points to me. Now, there's a couple of interesting things happening in verse 17. One, by this time, in the time of the writing of the Gospels, Israelites would be very aware that the Messiah, the promised anointed one who will sit on David's throne, is to come. And it has become so commonplace that Israelites would sometimes refer to the Messiah as the coming one. Here, Jesus used the word coming twice. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Some Bible teachers believe that what Jesus is doing here is actually kind of uh, uh, alluding to the fact that his coming is a sign that he is the coming one. At the very least, what he's saying here is he has a mission. And that mission is to fulfill the law. To He is the one to which the Old Testament law points. We alluded to it earlier. All of Israel's sacrificial system pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, in order for a sinner to enter into the outer courts of the tabernacle, later the temple an animal sacrifice had to be made. When we come to the New Testament, we find John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29, seeing Jesus. And what does he say about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John recognized that the Old Testament system of sacrifices pointed to Jesus. Jesus is its fulfillment. And here, Jesus says in verse 17, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And in the New Testament, we see that coupling together of law and the prophets multiple times. It's a way of referring to all of the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I am its fulfillment. 
It's pointing to me. It's about me. And because it's about me, Jesus is saying, I can tell you that it's not about externals. It's about the heart. It's about the mind. Righteousness is not about aligning with an external checklist. Righteousness, those who are truly right with God, that's going to be seen in the heart, in the mind. So much so that Jesus, as he comes to verse 18, is explaining that I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to tell you that everything that the Old Testament says is going to come to fruition down to the littlest detail. Before the end of the age, everything that the Old Testament says is going to come true. It's going to come to its fulfillment. Down to the littlest detail, down even to the smallest letter, which in the Hebrew alphabet is called Yod. It's just like a little apostrophe. Or the smallest stroke, which is just a little part of a letter. The stroke here would be, in the English, would be like the difference between a capital P and an R. Just that little tiny detail. And Jesus is saying, everything that the Old Testament says will come to its fulfillment down to the littlest detail. I'm not abolishing the Old Testament. I'm its fulfillment. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, He has the authority to interpret it. So much so, that if an Israelite said, I want to obey God, I want to obey God's law, they demonstrate that by obeying Jesus' word. Because to obey God was to obey Jesus' word. To obey the Old Testament law is to obey what Jesus says about the Old Testament law, not the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees just put together a human-made external checklist with their oral tradition that they knew that they could achieve to make themselves feel better about themselves. And Jesus in his teaching following these verses is going to say, no... You may think you're doing great, but you're not. Because righteousness is not external. Righteousness is in the heart and in the mind. In verse 19, Jesus alludes to the fact that there will actually, in the kingdom, be levels of responsibility Levels of position. It's not going to be a position where one can lift up themselves. It's going to be a position where a person has a greater ability to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says a person's position in the kingdom will be based on, on their obedience to the law. Ultimately to their obedience to his word. My wife, Barbara, and I are now empty nesters, but it hasn't been that long ago, and we have three teenagers in the home. And if you're in that position, you will understand what it means to not have a garage that's big enough for your family. We always had cars outside. It's just, it's part of being parents of teens. 
you can't have a big enough garage. For a while, we had five vehicles and a two-car garage. So we always had cars outside. During those years, we had several break-ins. And uh, one morning, my oldest son came out to look to get into his car to go to high school. And someone had punched out one of his locks of his door, got into his car, and stole two things. They stole a little device that he had to play his music through his speaker system. And unbeknownst to the crooks, they stole his Bible. Now, I don't think they would have been very happy about that. It was in a nice zipped up case. I don't know what they thought they were getting, but I'm sure they didn't think they were ripping off a Bible. In fact, I know they weren't too excited about it because we have a road just to the south of us, about 300 yards. And we didn't know it, but the crook drove 300 yards down to the next road, rolled down his window, and threw the Bible out the, do- out the window into the middle of the road. About 24 hours later, we get a phone call. A man had found my son's Bible. And he brought it by the house, and as my oldest son opened the Bible, there was a note inside. And 20 bucks. Not from the crook, from the guy that found the Bible. And in the note, he wrote this to my son. Roughly, to the best of my memory, it said, This book is very important to me. And I hope you will allow it to be a guide throughout your life. That was so cool. In fact, I found out later, it was from the dad of a young man who's part of our church family. You see, the word was important to that man. And one of the things that Jesus' listeners are going to have to grapple with is how important is the word of God to them. These teachers of the law would say that it's the most important thing to them, that they, the most important thing in their life. But their idea of importance was that the Old Testament law made them feel good about themselves because they added so much of their tradition to it that they could just view righteousness as a checklist. And Jesus says, now I've got authority over the law. And to be obedient to God is obedient to what I'm telling you the intent of the law is. To be obedient to God is to be obedient to Jesus' word. And that's going to affect each and every one of us in this room. For example, in two weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' words down in verse 27. that says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And for those Pharisees and religious leaders, they could say, oh, never done that, I'm golden. I'm good with God. But Jesus radically says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus is saying that being right with God is not something external. It's a matter of the heart and the mind. Remember, these are pictures of what righteousness looks like. 
And those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are the recipients of what Bible teachers call imputed righteousness, declared righteousness, that righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And if we are in a position where we are followers of Jesus Christ, having received His righteousness, these verses demand a response from us. And we are going to have to answer the question, how important is God's Word to me? Some can maybe just say something, well, I know Jesus said that, but that's how guys think. And if it's just being a guy. And what that is, is deflecting God's truth. That's like... It's like when you put a fresh coat of wax on your car and it rains and it beads up those little beads of water and they just fall off. That's what that is. It's deflecting God's truth away from us. Jesus here is saying that actually positions in the kingdom are based on how receptive people are to actually following God's Word. Not as the Pharisees follow God's Word, but as Jesus defines what God's Word is saying. Well, Jesus gets really radical in verse 20. So much so that when his this crowd... Here's verse 20. I guarantee you there would be people in that audience who were just instantly angry. I mean angry. Just mad. One of the fun things of being a preacher is watching people as you preach. One of my funnest things is when it's usually a guy, but if a guy's having a hard time staying awake, I gotta tell you, it's not offensive to me, it's hilarious. It's really funny. And, uh, but I can also see sometimes when somebody's really mad too. Well, I guarantee you, Jesus saw some mad people when he said what's in verse 20. And here's what he said. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? The scribes and the Pharisees, those are the most holy people we know. They, they're closer to God than anybody. And Jesus says, no, they're not. If that's what you're striving for, you can't get into the kingdom. If you think that you can find a series of checks, of boxes to check off that shows that you're right with God, you're not even close. Because Jesus, is, is this sermon is going to continue, shows that true righteousness is not externals, it's internal. And the other thing that he's going to show is this. That the righteousness of the Old Testament is absolute holiness. You see what the Pharisees and teachers of the law did? Is they actually diluted God's law by adding to it their Tradition, their checklist. And they diluted the fact that the Old Testament law 
is a radical demand because it demands absolute holiness. Because God is absolute holiness. I have a brother-in-law who is a farmer up in North Dakota in a little town called Munich, North Dakota. Munich used to be about 300 people, but I think it's downsized significantly. It's a very small town. My little nieces growing up there, uh, one of them I think had started out in first grade with three in her class. By the time she graduated, I think there were seven, but she was still related to half of them. It made school dances really difficult. And the grades were often combined. So like second and third graders together, fourth and fifth graders are together, and so on. Very tiny place. It's a great place to grow up. Although, I have to tell you right now, in front of my brother-in-law's Quonset, which has a door big enough to drive combines in and out, the snow drifts are a good two feet above the opening. I think his drifts are about 14 feet high. Uh, my niece, who's going to have a baby, I think, in May, took her picture standing up on top of the drift. So my brother-in-law is spending all winter with a, a loader just continually moving snow. But other than that, it's a great place to live. Well, my brother-in-law uh, has no livestock. Uh, he's a grain farmer. He raises wheat. He raises barley. He raises canola. But probably the crop that is most lucrative for him is flax. Now, flax. And it used to be that they took the straw from the flax and took it up to Canada because it's been used in clothing, but that market kind of dried up. But flax has become very lucrative because of the health benefits of flax. Flax is very high in omega-3s. In fact, studies have shown that the where the how far north the flax is grown lifts up the level of omega-3s. And so my brother-in-law is only about 25 miles from the Canadian border. Flax is the crop. And his business is not only raising the flax, but he cleans the flax and sells it to food producers. So he has a very large cleaning mill, big enough that he can drive entire semis into his mill and fill a semi with cleaned flax. And he can't raise near enough flax for his needs. He actually contracts all across the state of North Dakota. So in a sense, what he does is he buys somebody's crop before it's even raised, guaranteeing them a price so that he has enough flax for his for those that he supplies. If you go into Hy-Vee or someplace here in Cedar Rapids and buy uh, Bob's Red Mill, That's one of his clients. So if you buy flax from Bob's Red Mill, you probably got some flax from my brother-in-law's farm. Well, in order to sell food-grade flax, there's all kinds of requirements. It has to be pure. That it gets tested. And all of those screens in his mill that that flax goes through has to get all the foreign debris out. Well, almost all right. I mean, it's impossible to get every little particle out of that flax. I mean, some weed seeds are so tiny you can barely see them. When I go out and pheasant or quail hunt and 
and we open up a burr that we've harvested, sometimes there's little tiny weed seed in there that it's so tiny, it's, I can hardly see it with my, without my glasses on. You can't expect every little weed seed to not be in that flax. I mean, is it's pure flax, relatively speaking. There's no such thing as, relatively speaking, righteousness. The Pharisees thought there was. I'm better than 99% of the people around me. But not compared to God. Because God is absolute holiness. And Jesus here saying, you better have a righteousness better than the scribes and the Pharisees because theirs is just a relative righteousness. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, it has to be absolute holiness. That's how radical the Old Testament law was, which begs the question, well then, what do I do? How do I get in? How do I enter the kingdom of heaven? You know, early in Jesus' ministry, it's recorded for us in John chapter 3. Jesus had a conversation with one of those religious leaders. A guy named Nicodemus. And he's still making radical comments. He tells Nicodemus, uh, unless a person's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, born again? I'm I'm an adult man. What are you talking about born again? And Jesus goes on to explain to him that, that he's talking about a spiritual rebirth. And he goes on and, and alludes back to the Old Testament and shows Nicodemus the same thing he's showing us here in Matthew 5, that the whole Old Testament points to him. And he goes on and says, just like in the Old Testament, when that golden serpent was lifted up during Moses' day and everybody had to look upon it or else they'd perish, he said, even so the Son of Man has to be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have ever eternal life. And then Jesus said this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. You see, what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 is absolutely true. Only righteous people enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus tells us in a very radical way in Matthew 5 is absolutely true. There's no such thing as relatively being righteous. It's absolute righteousness. Then we're all lost, right? But Jesus also teaches that there is a righteousness available to us. It's the righteousness that he offers, the righteousness of Christ, that comes through faith. That when we put our trust in the person of Jesus Christ... He declares us to be righteous. So righteous that as the Father sees us, all He sees is a saint clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is what we celebrated this morning. And if you're here today, and and in your heart you know you've been trying to check off some a list saying, you know, I think I'm pretty good with God. There's none of us that are pretty good with God. Because there's no such thing as a relative righteousness. The only way to be right with God is through believing 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. You can just talk to God and say, God, I know my sin separates me from you and I can't fix it. And right now I'm coming to you telling you that I believe that Jesus is God, that he died for me and rose again. And I'm putting my trust in him that his payment is a sufficient payment for me. And if you'd like to find out more about that, one of our elders will be, one of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church, will be back in our prayer room. We've got some material that you can just take home for yourself, or maybe you want to go through it with a friend. You can pick, just go back and say, hey, can I have some of that material that talks about being right with God, and we can give that to you. You can take your own Bible, look up passages that affirm to you how you can know for sure that you're right with God. Jesus here is radical. He's saying the whole Old Testament points to me. I fulfilled it. And because of that, I can tell you what the Old Testament says. I have the authority. Righteousness is not external. It's not a checklist. It's internal. It's the heart. It's the mind. And that righteousness, that absolute purity that we need to enter the kingdom of heaven, we can't earn it. But it's available to us by believing in the one that the Old Testament points to, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you that even though relatively being righteous isn't good enough for entrance into the kingdom, you have made it possible for us to be declared absolutely righteous through faith in Jesus. We praise you. We thank you this day for what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.